Okay, well now I want to welcome all of you, uh, 83 or even more, uh, who are here to hear our session on critical issues confronting China. Uh, we started the uh, Zoom series uh, uh, two weeks ago. This is the third in our series. And uh, bad news, of course, is that we can't assemble here in Cambridge. The good news is that by using Zoom, we can reach an audience outside of Cambridge and people uh, anywhere uh, can tune into our session. So that enables us to have, uh, we, we expect probably to be close to 100 before we finish. Um, uh, let me introduce the speaker first, and then I'll turn it over to Nick to tell how, how we handle the question period. Uh, our speaker, uh, Carla Freeman, uh, is a graduate of Yale, and then went on to SICE for her PhD, spent a few years uh, in Wisconsin, uh, where her husband and his family are uh, in the architect uh, business, and uh, she uh, sort of works between Washington and Wisconsin. And uh, she is a director of the Foreign Policy Institute at SAIS. Uh, as you know, SAIS is a key place for training uh, originally foreign policy officials. And uh, they uh, remained at, uh, a think tank as well as a teaching institution. And they have remained in the center of activities uh, even in the new era. Um, we try in our series to keep up education about China and to use research uh, to understand what's going on, to go beyond the emotions that many people have uh, and uh, to try to get a, a real understanding. And Carla has been working on many issues, but one of the issues is uh, how do we have a commons uh, in dealing with issues like space? And uh, I think for our series, this is a very key issue because the question is, how much does China, uh, how much are they prepared to take part in international governance uh, and in setting global standards? And so we feel very lucky that uh, Carla, who is still uh, teaching, still doing research, running uh, a Foreign Policy Institute at SAIS, uh, is willing to take the time to be with us today. Uh, about six years ago, uh, she spent a year at Harvard, so uh, we know her and she knows us, and we're very glad to welcome her back. And without further ado, Carla, it's yours. Thanks for coming. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra, for inviting me and for the kind introduction. And uh, thanks to the Fairbank Center staff, uh, Mark and Nick, as well. Um, by the way, uh, Ezra, I've been enjoying our, your latest book on China and Japan's difficult relationship. And, uh, uh, and, and I wish I could be as prolific as you. Uh, I, I also, I also want to thank uh, the Kluge Center of the Library of Congress. I'm actually uh, a fellow there, uh, the chair of the U.S.-China program there this spring, although because of the uh, pandemic, I find myself uh, unable to be in my lovely office at the Library of Congress this spring, but I want to thank them for hosting me there and, and for funding my research, uh, some of which I'm, I'm going to share with you today. Uh, and I also want to say quick, a quick hello to my cousin Rip Freeman, who is uh, joining our program today. Thank you, Rip, for, for attending. Um, 
Anyway, I've been working on this topic of how China is changing the global commons and how China's growing role in the global, global commons may be changing China for a little while, but my work is still very much a work in progress, and you're getting my first truly public talk on the topic, so I'm, I'm honored uh, to do this at the Fairbank Center and to have such a distinguished audience, and I'm very much looking forward to your questions. Um, as were mentioned, I was at the Fairbanks Center about six or seven years ago, and that's when I first started my research on this. Uh, it was my last sabbatical, and I've continued to, to write. I published a couple of articles on the topic. Uh, and I think it's a, it, even though uh, six or seven years have gone by since I first uh, started working on my research, I think the issue is more important than ever. Uh, it's it seems more important than ever to understand uh, this, how China is interacting with the global commons or what I sometimes call uh, the earth's final frontiers because we're on the edge of a really dramatic shift toward a much, much bigger presence by China in these global commons with all sorts of possible ramifications, uh, some of which I'll comment on today. Uh, one recent marker, for example, of China's uh, growing presence is the announcement just a couple of days ago on the 50th anniversary of China's first successful satellite launch uh, by Beijing that its Tianwen one or Ask the Heavens One uh, Mars mission is going to proceed uh, in July 2020. Um, before moving, let me say that I know that talking about China and the global commons sounds kind of far out. Um, the global commons is not a particularly uh, mainstream kind of term. And then the words final frontiers may be worse. Have a, have, they have sort of a sci-fi, Star Trek-y kind of flavor. But one does hear about the global commons from strategic thinkers and military planners who think about flows of, of power. Uh, in the early 2000s, Barry Posen uh, published an influential article article in International Security titled Command of the Commons, the Military Foundations of U.S. Hegemony, and the 2010 uh, Quadrennial Defense Review, uh, the United States Defense Review, referenced the need to, quote, unquote, assure access to the commons as, quote, the connect connective tissue of the international system as a key goal of U.S. military strategy. And this, the global commons is also a term that's used by the United Nations to refer to these spaces. Again, these are all spaces that exist beyond the sovereign, sovereign control of national governments. So I'm going to use the term global commons today and also in my writing based on those precedents and basically for want of a better label for those parts of our planet outside national sovereignty, uh, these, the physical manifestations of these, these, these uh, spaces, you could include cyberspace, for example, which isn't a physical space. They include the high seas, the seabed, uh, the atmosphere, Antarctica, and sometimes people include the central Arctic Ocean and, of course, outer space. Uh, before I, I, I turn to my uh, remarks, I, I should note that China itself does not use the term uh, global commons, in its official documents, but a number of its scholars do write about the global commons and, commons and their relevance to China's rise in power. Uh, before I get to China and the global commons, it's worth thinking about why these global commons even exist. Global commons themselves are a rare phenomenon in the world. Much of their history has been is the story of their enclosure. Uh, yet we have these vast planetary spaces that 
that remain outside sovereign sovereign control or what some people call um, they are unterritorialized. Unterrit- uh, there are several reasons that uh, the global commons still exist. Uh, now, to, to name a few of them, first of all, they are vast. They're vast and they're uninhabited. The high seas are over or uninhabitable. The high seas are over two thirds of our world's oceans. Antarctica, for example, is about 10% of the Earth's land area. Low Earth orbit, which is the region of space nearest the Earth, about which begins about 60 kilometers um, above sea level and then extends another 2,000 kilometers. And that's just low, low Earth orbit, orbit. These are vast spaces. And the fact is that humans are not adapted to living in them. And so it makes controlling them very difficult. And that this gets to another reason why these spaces have remained outside the sovereign control of, 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 of states. It takes a certain level of technology and organization to be able to use them and to access them and controlling them is even more difficult because it's difficult for states to establish and then defend borders in these global commons, at least historically. And that isn't for want of trying. Uh, today, states' territorial waters Uh, 12 nautical miles, are four times what they were just about half a century ago. And states continue to have outstanding territorial claims to Antarctica, despite uh, the treaty that was signed in 1959 to make it a a global commons. And there are also contingents around the world who have designs on outer space, asteroids, for example, as well as the moon. Just a couple of weeks ago, for example, uh, President Trump building off a law that was actually signed by President Obama to legalize the sale and ownership of extracted resources uh, from celestial bodies. Uh, he signed, Trump signed an executive order, order that recognizes the rights of private interest to claim resources in space. So things are changing very rapidly. Another reason we still have a global commons in the high seas is uh, thanks to international law, which which Ezra mentioned. Uh, Most notably, uh, famously, the persuasive arguments and the backing that Hugo Grotius had. Hugo Grotius was a lawyer who in 1609 made a very powerful case known as uh, Mare Liberum or the Free Seas uh, to resolve a dispute uh, between the Dutch and, and, the, and Holland's rivals, Portugal and Spain, over uh, whether trade routes should remain open to all on the high seas. Portugal and Spain had claimed exclusive rights to these maritime routes for trade and their links to their, 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 their colonies in Asia. And uh, their claims essentially followed an earlier precedent of European thalassocracies or seaborne empires that exercised exclusive control over areas of the sea. Uh, For example, the Hanseatic League dominated the Baltic and then at at the height of its power, Venice effectively controlled the entire Adriatic Sea. So working for the Dutch East India Company uh, and using uh, Roman legal precedent and and other other sources, Rhodius effectively uh, launched launched an effective legal challenge to Portugal's and Spain's claims arguing that there was a long history of viewing the seas as quote-unquote common to all since no one had ever actually controlled all of the seas and therefore he argued that the right to freely sail the seas and engage in in commerce across the seas and to exploit uh, its fisheries, the seas fisheries, was part of quote-unquote nature's plan, a natural right of man to share in a common benefit. And 
Subsequent powers, uh, notably the British, uh, followed by the United States, have seen it in their interest to preserve the high seas and, um, and, and this custom of open access to the high seas waters using nimble but uh, powerful navies with strategically positioned ports and strategic partnerships. They've been able to project power and secure what uh, what um, Alfred Thayer-Mann called the open highways of the sea for maritime commerce. Uh, territorial waters in the, in, until recently, again, were limited along coast to a distance defined by the so-called cannon shot rule. So that was just about, about three nautical miles. During the Cold War, uh, the Soviets had, were developing their own blue water navy under the leadership of a Admiral Gorshkov. And in, in Gorshkov's book, The Sea Power of the State, Gorshkov actually uses Marxist arguments to preserve the seas as a global commons. And in any case, uh, once Moscow actually had acquired a blue water navy and a global power projection capabilities, as well as a, as a fishing fleet capable of doing uh, uh, substantial fishing operations and also um, the capacity to do uh, extensive maritime research, Moscow also chose to support high seas freedoms and to endorse a strengthened legal regime that could better secure uh, maritime mobility uh, and to at least prevent the misuse of ocean resources by other states. And uh, so we see, uh, we see both the United States and, Mo and Moscow working together during the Cold War to uh, support an open access or global commons regime for the high seas. Uh, and together, even during the Cold War, the two countries were also able to agree that uh, this idea that outer space should be a, a global commons and uh, that, uh, that there would be open skies for satellites uh, that could pass over, over different countries' territories because that would have significant benefits for mutual security in the age of nuclear weapons. And of course, the United States has developed incredible uh, military technologies merged with, uh, with, uh, with uh, civilian uh, uh, global technologies we all use every day and we're using right now to project tremendous uh, power of, of different types. Uh, and just in terms of its military power, its overseas conflicts are, 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 are really, uh, to a large extent, space-based wars. Uh, this is something that China took note of since the first and, and, and especially since the second Gulf War. Uh, and, China, and the United States has, has uh, provided uh, global public goods to preserve the global commons by defending uh, the high seas from piracy uh, and, and by until re recently, at least historically, supporting uh, negotiations for international treaties that preserve the global commons as universally accessible uh, spaces. Uh, of course, the United States has has uh, in, through its foreign policy mechanisms supported these treaties, uh, but uh, once they get to Congress, they don't always get ratified. And so uh, notably the United States has not ratified the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Uh, and, and also like all countries with manned space capabilities, it has not ra uh, ratified the Moon Treaty either. So in some cases, uh, the United States actually uh, uh, follows so-called customary law, but in fact uh, has not uh, actually ratified the uh, legal regimes that preserve these, these, uh, these global commons as open access spaces. So now to China. Uh, 
the topic of China and the global commons is interesting uh, for many reasons, including uh, because of China's impact on global governance. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's also interesting because it helps us uh, see how China's growing ability to access and exploit the global commons is reshaping them, the power dynamics within them, and again, their global governance, and then how uh, China's engagement in all of these different global co common spaces, it may be changing China itself. And, and that's something I find particularly interesting. Uh, I also find the whole topic interesting for a kind of higher level reason as well, as um, uh, in the early 1990s, uh, mid 1990s, John Agnew and Stuart Corbridge uh, wrote a book called Mastering Space, Hegemony, Territory and in International Political Economy. And uh, they, were, uh, they were thinking about, uh, about geopolitics at a time of rapid political change. Uh, and they observed that uh, at, at that moment, when globalization was uh, was 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 uh, was transforming uh, international relations around the world, uh, they noted they noted their observation was that globalization and the and the technologies that that were fostering were helping to to speed up globalization uh, had made geopolitics very fluid. And uh, Agnew and Corbridge uh, saw that. Uh, technology uh, as well as economic uh, power and other nation, national capabilities uh, like like education had had were, were joining uh, conventional uh, geopolitical uh, attributes of power as they put it as sources of, of states uh, abilities to pursue their national interests and they saw this uh, as, a, as a part of the overall diffusion of national power uh, that uh, was part of globalization and was actually reducing uh, the role, uh, the geographical uh, primacy of the territorial state in the international system. And so what's interesting now is you've got emerging powers like China that are particularly fierce guardians of their national sovereignty and many emerging powers who are uh, coming to becoming important actors in the global commons have not settled their territorial borders uh, and, uh, and, and they, are, they are fiercely defensive of their sovereignty. And so their rise may be giving the Westphalian system a reprieve. And so, uh, and not to mention, uh, uh, what how you American policy in the direction of, of American politics in the world right now. Uh, so the mastery by China of capabilities to to both access and use the global commons uh, may mark a, a be part of another change, a new change in direction in global policy politics that does less to actually erode um, uh, notions of national power that are rooted in territorial sovereignty than really to re-describe sovereignty along global or planetary lines. And I'll try to come back to this idea in my discussion of governance of the commons, but think about uh, extending national property rights into space uh, and expanding the, and ter further territorializing uh, the high seas and so forth. Uh, I should note that, uh, that there is already excellent work on China's growing engagement with each of these uh, specific global commons as kind of discrete areas of interaction. Um, Anne-Marie Brady, for example, uh, published uh, a few years ago a really path-breaking book on China as a polar great power. 
Uh, and you also have people like jo Joan Johnson Fries at the Naval War College or Clay Moltz at the Naval Postgraduate School who've done um, pioneering work on China and space security and written on various aspects of this. And then there, there's been a huge amount of work by people uh, very familiar to this audience, uh, like Peter, Peter Dutton, uh, also at, at, uh, at, at the Naval War College. Uh, and Peter, for a decade at least, has been probing how, how China's uh, activities uh, in the maritime arena are, are impacting uh, that, that, uh, that uh, global commons, that global environment. What I'm doing is trying to look at the global commons as a single entity, uh, because for a number of reasons. One, one is that they're naturally connected as part of their, the Earth's systems that support human life. Uh, but it's also because they tend to be linked domains uh, through technology. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so when powerful, technologically capable states use them, they tend to use, they tend to deploy technology that, that brings these commons together. And I'll, and I'll give you some examples of that in a minute. So looking at, but at the same time, then looking at each of the commons together, sort of side by side, to see uh, how China is interacting with each of them and then comparing them uh, also uh, helps me see some of the common patterns, of course, and also reveals uh, some, some points where it's more difficult to generalize about China's behavior across these three different uh, global commons uh, arenas. So um, here's some, some, let me give you some background on, on China's interactions with the commons. And, and Ezra, just to let you know, I am watching the time uh, carefully and I'll, I, I'm going on a bit longer than I, I had planned, but I, I'll, I'll make sure that I, I wrap up no later than midway through our program. So our audience has plenty of time for Q and A. Uh, so for some background, uh, Chinese interactions with the commons have, have expanded particularly rapidly in the past decade. But of course, China is building on decades of, of groundwork that it, it laid. Um, you know, it's hard to believe that when, uh, when uh, the PRC uh, took power that uh, it, it inherited uh, a navy that was, was a river eye navy, very poorly equipped, uh, but within uh, just a few years, by the uh, late 1950s, China had already begun a nuclear submarine and ballistic, ballistic missile program. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, in 1970, China had a per capita income of $120 or so, uh, and that was the year it launched its satellite into space. Uh, it sent a Taikonaut into space in 2003. Uh, and, uh, its Antarctic program uh, began with Deng Xiaoping. With the, when China launched its reforms in 1978, Deng, of course, made science and technology a, a, maybe the, the most fundamental pillar of his four modernizations. Uh, and uh, China almost immediately sent scientists to the uh, to to Antarctica to uh, visit uh, a research station and set up a committee to study Antarctica. Uh, and had, by 1985, had already set up an Antarctic uh, station uh, and uh, was engaging in projects uh, both to its scientific and some with uh, military implications. Um, but the most dramatic developments have really taken, um, taken off uh, since Xi Jinping uh, came to power. Uh, and these can all be seen as activities that are sort of part and parcel of the break 
from the Taoguang Yanghui uh, 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 approach to foreign policy to, to Xi's more assertive Yosuo approach to international affairs. Um, since 2012, uh, China, the Chinese leaders have have uh, put a lot of folk given a lot of attention to these different arenas, and in in 2015 um, began talking about them these spaces as new strategic frontiers in which China has they haven't used the term uh, core but uh, significant national interests, and in in 2015 uh, included in China's new national security law, uh, China in, uh, created a domestic legal basis, um, the domestic legal basis for it to uh, enlarge its activities in all of these spaces, the polar regions, outer space, and especially the seabed uh, areas. And one of the um, members of the Legislative Affairs Commission of, of the NPC commented on the law while well, it was being drafted and was quoted in the China Daily, I think it was. Uh, she observed that uh, I think she observed that China's exploration and development of these new frontiers was, quote, conducive to the common interests of mankind, but also that China had the right to safeguard its activities, its assets, as well as its personnel within them. Uh, and China has since then produced extensive white papers on all of these different domains. It had a new, it published a new white paper on outer space in 2016. And for those not familiar, these white papers uh, offer policy guidance. They, 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 get, they, they lay out a, an approach and set some uh, targets for, uh, for the, uh, the, the Chinese uh, government. China published a new white paper on outer space in 2016, a paper on Antarctica in 2017, and then a, uh, a white paper on uh, the Arctic in 20, 2018. Uh, and these are some of the, some of these are the very first white papers on these frontiers. But um, the but uh, China had previously issued a white paper on outer space, and just using that particular white paper paper as an example, you can see how uh, you can see a sh the shift in in tone and direction uh, from the earlier white 2011 white paper to the 2016 white paper. In 2016, uh, outlining China's uh, space policy, uh, the, the paper states that the primary purpose of China's program is, quote, the realization of the Chinese dream of renewal of the Chinese nation and to make positive contributions to human civilization and progress. Uh, and that kind of positions China as a global leader in outer space. The previous, the 2011 white paper suggested that the primary, said that the primary purpose of China's space power objectives were to, quote, protect China's national rights and interests and build up its comprehensive national strength, national comprehensive strength. So very different kind of uh, tone. And of course, these state council policy documents have been accompanied by an increase in activities in all of these domains. Some have, um, perhaps you could argue that some have been accelerated because they've been linked to uh, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, for example. So now there's a polar silk road for, uh, linked to the BR as part of the BRI, as well as a space silk road. Uh, and in the case of the latter, uh, one form that the Space Silk Road is taking is encouraging uh, Belt and Road participants to connect to China's uh, indigenous global positioning system known as Beidou. Uh, some analysts from countries who are skeptical of China's intentions 
see a lot of these activities as 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 aimed uh, not not to uh, you know ag- expand China's access to resources or to engage in scientific research, but as fundamentally aimed at shifting the strategic ba- balance. And to give one possible example, uh, there are concerns that that, that uh, China has set up a number of of. Uh, of ground stations for Beidou, its satellite, its uh, global positioning system in Antarctica, uh, and these um, these these stations expand the capabilities, or among other things, that help expand the capabilities of Beidou uh, to give China's ballistic missile systems uh, over the over the horizon targeting capabilities, which some people see as uh, having si- significant implications for the strategic balance in the Asia-Pacific and and perhaps uh, farther afield. So those are all some examples, but it's really China's gambit in the South China Sea that I think is the poster child for this whole story of China and the global commons and really the source of most international concerns about China's behavior. as I think I may have mentioned, China participated in and and signed the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, uh, which most countries uh, agree defines the 200 nautical mile uh, exclusive economic zone that that treaty establishes uh, as part of the high seas. So countries are allowed to use, to, to they have jurisdiction over the resources in those uh, exclusive economic zones, but they do not uh, have, they cannot control uh, uh, vessels entering and leaving those waters. Those are high seas waters. So those high seas water, as high seas waters, the EEZ waters are freely open to transit by military as well as uh, to commercial uh, shipping. But China has sought to regulate access out by vessels within its EEZ on a number of occasions challenging uh, U.S. and and also Indian naval vessels' rights uh, to access the EEZ without uh, prior notification. So that has been a big concern. In addition, uh, China refused to participate in the binding arbitration process brought by the Philippines under procedures that were laid out by the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea to establish uh, the location of its EEZ, uh, and uh, which for the Philippines is incompatible with China's South China Sea claims. Uh, and that's a, a concern. And also China, in order to further establish its maritime claims, China has engaged in dredging and other construction, which has wreaked environmental havoc uh, as it constructed islands and built military infrastructure on top of some of the world's most diverse reefs in the South China Sea. And China has intimidated fishermen from neighboring countries with overlapping claims in what seems uh, seems to be a bid to secure uh, important fisheries in the South China Sea. And there are also concerns that China is trying to uh, secure parts of the sea for its own uh, national oil companies uh, which have moved, in, in some cases, truly massive uh, deep sea drilling rigs into the area. And in 2014, there was, of course, a huge uh, uh, deep sea drilling rig that was moved into waters that China and Vietnam contest. Uh, and, uh, and China referred to that risk rig as Chinese sovereign territory. So those have all uh, 
uh, uh, those actions in the South China Sea uh, have uh, raised uh, alarms on a lot of different levels. But uh, uh, one of them is uh, that, that China's behavior uh, in the South China Sea is seen by many as a kind of potential encapsulation of what China's uh, role could be in the global commons writ large. And so there's concern that China might use its its capability to engage in resource grabbing, whether it's fish or oil or minerals from Antarctica, the seabed, or even even celestial features. Uh, and critics point to the fact that although China participates in international treaties governing most of the commons, the South China Sea case and, and other examples, for example, China's, China's participation in, in fisheries agreements. Um, I had a student do a a dissertation on that, uh, and uh, she studied China's behavior and said China sort of adheres to the terms and sort of doesn't. She described China's behavior as sort of playing the edge ball in ping pong, you know, just going sort of skimming the edge uh, of of, of uh, compliance, but uh, but also uh, also not fully not really complying. Um, on the other hand, uh, China's been doing really well meeting its nationally determined contributions to the Paris Agreement uh, uh, with respect to to trying to reduce uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions in in the atmosphere, another global commons. Uh, so there are there are positive examples of of, of China's behaviors, but there there are other concerns as well. Um, the concerns big concerns about the security implications of China's growing role, um, concern that China will use its military muscle in other commons like it did in the South China Sea to intimidate the Philippines, for example, to, to shift the global strategic balance. And people will point to the um, 2007 ASAT test, which generated a whole bunch of debris, uh, for example, and uh, or to Beidou, which, which is China's uh, global positioning system uh, that is far larger than the United States. It has, uh, it already has, I think, 20 more satellites than than the United States GPS, and and that that has that's shifting the strategic balance. And uh, and then and there's so many other other concerns. Of course, there's an industry of people in Washington working on these, but uh, also there's there are signs of growing cooperation between China and Russia in these these arenas, and that raises concerns as well. Um, but, it, to the, but again, the, the greatest interna immediate international concern is that China's is, is relates to China's effort to extend effectively sovereign jurisdiction into the global commons by, by changing the rules of the game uh, that apply to the EEZ, trying to regulate mil military vessels. And by doing that, violating this, this long-held you know, customary, this long tradition of freedom of navigation in the high seas. Uh, and many people see this as uh, part of a long game by China to challenge uh, and change global norms and rules to essentially uh, territorialize the global commons, whether it's in Antarctica or outer space. Uh, space law protects uh, celestial bodies from national appropriation, but uh, as you you could see with with the, the with Trump's executive order that I mentioned earlier, it doesn't actually adjudicate ownership of resources that are are extracted from celestial bodies. And um, and there are some there's a, there's a, there's some in China, for example. Ye Peijian, who's the head of uh, China's lunar exploration program, he has actually compared moon, the moon and Mars to the Senkakus and Spratly Islands uh, and warned that if you don't explore them and you don't 
essentially explore and sort of um, assert your ability to your ability to claim them, it might result in the usurpation of China's space rights and interests by others. Uh, so these kinds of comments raise a lot of questions about China's intentions uh, in other places like Antarctica, which will have a treaty review in 2048, uh, or how China might try to itself change uh, space law and so forth. So um, I'm wrapping up here. Let me just conclude with a couple of, of messy thoughts on how China's uh, technological reach into these global commons, uh, its planetary future uh, may be changing China itself. I mean, one way is that um, I, and if you go to a Chinese bookstore, you'll see a lot of kids' books that uh, talk about becoming an astronaut. That's a new thing. Uh, Chinese kids can now dream of being uh, taikonauts, which is quite remarkable. And of course, I also mentioned uh, the ways in which it's, it's, it's changing uh, China's domestic policy infrastructure, uh, lots of new policies. And, and uh, with that, I have been building out some organization charts associated with all of these uh, these new initiatives. And, and so, uh, you know, you have a whole array of new uh, think tanks and other bodies involved in, in planning and, uh, and channeling resources to try to uh, expand uh, China's technological and other capabilities in these arenas. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out exactly uh, how this may be reshaping uh, China specifically. But uh, one of the things that's really clear is that uh, like other great powers, uh, China sees these different global commons as interconnected frontier spaces that are really a laboratory for its further technological advancement that are literally going to de deliver a universe of new opportunities for, for China through uh, the through the pursuit of, of, of scientific and technological development. You can read some of, about some of this, uh, this vision specifically in China's uh, SNT roadmap to 2050, I think came out a couple of years ago. So China's, in my, as I, I'm starting to, um, to think that China's reach into these, into these uh, frontier spaces, into the global commons, have become integral to China's embrace of technology as the engine of its, its, its future. And maybe it, it's even part of a new dream of kind of perpetual, a perpetual technological revolution. Or um, I've been reading uh, Walter McDougall's amazing 1985 book on the space age. He calls it a saltation a saltation, a leap into in the relationship of the state to the creation of new knowledge. The, I think what I, it, the question is, um, will China, uh, will China embrace this, this sort of technical, technological driven uh, future uh, by, um, uh, 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 by opening uh, its own technological development to international cooperation, a sort of maybe techno-globalism with Chinese characteristics, or will it become a, a techno-nationalism that will uh, harden lines between China and other countries in, in competition in the, in the global commons and maybe in, increase the impulse by China and other powers in response to expand uh, sovereignty or at least property rights into the global commons that will just uh, I think shift the balance between the um, in the global commons 
from uh, open access spaces uh, to uh, intense to zones of intense security competition, uh, which will uh, give uh, international rivalry truly uh, planetary uh, proportions. So I think I'll stop there and, and take some questions. Thank you, Ezra. <laughs> Uh, maybe I can start off with one question before I ask Nick how to explain for other questioners. <clears throat> uh, given the great tension between the United States and China now, do you think the uh, possibility of getting some agreements uh, about space are now impossible? Or if you were <clears throat> in a new administration in the United States, and you wanted to work with China in a positive way to try to keep uh, the commons a commons and not to get too territorialized uh, in Arctic and Antarctic particularly. Uh, it sounds like those are the, the areas where that, and, and, and beyond the South China Sea, so where China might be territorializing the common. <clears throat> Do you think <clears throat> it's now impossible to have some kind of cooperation in getting new international agreements? Um, or if you were in charge of a new administration, uh, what would you do to try, now that you've done such uh, amazing amount of work on all these issues, uh, what, what would your strategy in a new administration be for responding to China? Well, that's that's a an ambitious question, <laughs> and uh, oh, and it and it and I really should be able to try to 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 answer it. But I, I think let me just uh, wander into it by starting with uh, the the change from the the uh, George W. Bush administration to the Obama administration. Uh, the 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 George Bush administration had really uh, hardened lines on on an intensified competition in the global commons and uh, had uh, had had policies that were designed to outcompete uh, other powers and a lot as directed toward China and Russia in these spaces. Uh, when, when Obama came in uh, to office, uh, he uh, and his administration uh, focused much more on working with China uh, to strengthen uh, the, the legal regime around these global commons. And that was one area for cooperation. There's still parts of those agreements that the United States uh, itself doesn't want to agree to uh, because of its own concerns about, about, uh, about resource extraction. And that's one reason, you know, because of our concerns about turning over our rights to uh, an international authority, our rights to exploit our seabed, we have never been able to uh, to ratify um, the uh, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, but there, there is a lot of uh, the a lot of work, is particularly in uh, around the outer space um, uh, regime, uh, for uh, China and the United States to engage together to strengthen uh, that regime. And there's obviously a pressure to be able to now that we have the technology, emerging technologies, to do this to uh, to um, exploit uh, uh, celestial resources, uh, there needs to be a, a regime to govern that uh, so that we can do that in a way that isn't uh, disorganized. Also, I didn't mention it, but outer space is getting pretty crowded, surprisingly. There are just too many satellites. And we have a lot of private actors, not just uh, on the US side, but internationally, including China, who are deploying uh, new types of satellite technologies. Uh, Elon Musk, for example, is, is, is 
is using sort of cluster satellites, these little tiny satellites. And that, that just clutters up space even more. And so we need regulations beyond uh, the ones that exist to, to uh, manage uh, some of that. Uh, so there's a lot of room for uh, discussion uh, between the United States and China. And uh, I think discussion that would be welcomed by the Europeans uh, who have their own space program, but also by other emerging powers, whether it's Turkey uh, or um, Saudi Arabia, other, others who would want to uh, uh, be able to regulate this environment because it enables them to make uh, better choices uh, about, uh, about where to put their resources as they, as they learned, uh, as, they, as they develop the technology to, um, to access uh, the, these, these various commons. So I, I think I would start at, I mean, obviously bilateral discussions are extremely imp important because we need you know, we've, 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 we aren't doing those, um, but having, having uh, strengthening our mil military to military conversations, our, our, our tech, tech, our conversations uh, between the, the folks in government who work on science and technology, such an important part of the U.S.-China relationship, all of those bilateral um, uh, facets of the relationship could be restarted, but we can also um, do that with international uh, law and global governance in mind. And there's a big demand in the international system for that. Um, in the United States, if it wants to continue to be seen as a country that contributes to global public goods, it really needs to be doing that. Um, we're not doing that right now. We need to get back to that. Thank you very much. Before I turn it over to everybody else, uh, she mentioned, uh, Carla, you mentioned Peter Dutton. If Peter Dutton is in the audience, Nick, could you let him ask the first question or make the first comment? And then we'll turn it over to everybody else. Is Peter Dutton in the audience? Oh, here he is. Here he is coming. Yeah. Hi, uh, Carla. Thanks very much for a great uh, presentation. Can, can you hear me? I can, I can. That's really terrific. Um, very kind of you to, uh, to mention those of us who are also working on this. Um, I, uh, I'm curious whether you've, you've seen any, uh, you've talked about some of the different shifts um, that, that China has made over the last um, several years uh, in terms of their approach to strategy. And I'm wondering if you um, <clears throat> are, are seeing um, the way that they're shifting uh, in, in their approach to the maritime domain um, as their maritime power is growing, it seems as though they're becoming a bit more comfortable with more, uh, you know, with rules that allow for more open access uh, because it, it, it preferences now their own power. And I'm wondering if you're, you're seeing um, that sort of shift uh, in other domains. Yeah, so, so I, I, I haven't seen that in other domains, partly because we, we just aren't at the same point uh, in these other domains that we are uh, in the in the in the oceans. Uh, so it's uh, but uh, I think uh, we we may uh, we may see uh, some um, we, we're seeing some signals and interest in uh, in strengthening uh, property rights in outer space uh, by China, uh, but that doesn't necessarily that won't necessarily be in 
uh, incompatible with an, with an open access regime. It just depends on their scope and uh, and how they are how they are designed. Um, I yeah I think you're suggesting that in in the in the high seas, uh, it's it we probably it, we may see China uh, sort of do what the the Soviets did once they had a, a blue water navy, uh, which is embrace uh, the ability to sail the the, the seas. And, and we've already seen uh, China. In uh, in uh, I think it's in in the U.S. territorial waters. In, was that in 2014? And it's sail- the Chinese vessels, uh, naval vessels, are sailing all around. Um, and uh, but whether uh, you know it, whether China will decide that uh, that those if 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 the United States wants to have its its EEZs and territorial waters open to military vessels, that's the U.S. prerogative. But if China chooses not to, that's its prerogative. That might be a different way of interpreting. Uh, these these international regimes and uh, that would be interesting to see uh, that kind of uh, uh, approach applied to the interpretation of other other um, other regimes for the global commons but I'd really I am your student here so I'd really love to have your thoughts well um, yeah if you don't mind I'll just a quick comment um, it's very interesting to see that that China's doing two things at the same time um, in in the maritime domain they're they're uh, relaxing their approach to um, access for their own navy but kind of doubling down on their own near seas claims to uh, to have prerogatives of control so I don't know it's a it's an interesting approach to uh, the commons um, sort of defense at home and offense away um, and and it's a, just kind of my question was geared towards whether that sort of thing was uh, being observed in other domains. Yeah, I think I think we we um, it, we may we may see some of that in outer space, but um, soon, but but not not yet because right now uh, it's it's still you know China still hasn't been able to uh, exert that kind of control. But there are some things happening in orbital space. Uh, there, people have all kinds of interesting uh, notions about uh, about ideas of of um, even choke points in outer space and things like that. And it may be that we'll see some of this play out uh, where in, in orbital space sooner rather than later. Uh, but something to watch. Carla, I want to thank you for coming with us today. It's uh, very clear that you've done an extraordinary amount of research and thinking and how complicated these issues are uh, and how many borderline issues there are between what's in common and what has been decided by international rules and what still uh, allows room for individual uh, efforts to uh, uh, improve their own situation. And uh, it raises just a lot of these basic questions. And so we're very appreciative of you taking the time and we look forward to your new research uh, publication. Thank, thank you very much, Carla. Thank you very much, Ezra. Thank you. Thank you for the great questions. It's a reminder reminder that this that I am audacious in trying to take on this topic, <laughs> but I, I appreciate them and uh, I will follow up in my research. Thank you. Well, I think we're, we're fortunate in having a wonderful audience and a lot of very bright people with a lot of good questions. and. Uh, we're glad we challenged you to stretch what you're thinking about all these important issues. Thank you, Carla. Bye-bye. Bye.